Donald Hoffman is a professor of cognitive science at uh, the University of California, Irvine. There was a fascinating interview with him published a few years ago in the Atlantic magazine titled The Case Against Reality. I invite you to hear just one paragraph from that interview. It's regarding the fascinating existence of our human consciousness, that we're here, that we're conscious, the astounding fact that we are awake and aware of our surroundings. Dr. Hoffman said, not only are many neuroscientists and philosophers of mind ignoring the progress in fundamental physics, they're often explicit about it. They know what they're doing. They say openly that quantum physics is just not relevant to the aspects of brain function that are causally involved in why we're conscious. They are certain that it's got to be the classical properties of neural activity which exist independent of any observers. Things like spiking rates of electricity in our body, things like the connection strengths at the synapses, these physical synapses in our brain, things like dynamical properties as well, the ways the different regions of the brain intersect to, to create what is sometimes called mind or consciousness. These are all very classical notions that correspond to Newtonian physics, where time is absolute and objects exist absolutely. And then neuroscientists are mystified why they don't make progress. They don't avail themselves of the incredible insights and breakthroughs that physics is making. These insights are out there for us to use, and yet my field seems to be saying, we'll stick with Newton, thank you. We'll stay 300 years behind in our physics. This quote challenges us to reflect on what do we know about physics here in the early 21st century and what are the implications for our understandings of things like neuroscience, human consciousness, and our place in the universe. There's a whole lot to say about all that, uh, to, to carve off one little slice for this morning to reflect on. I want us to use the entry point of Albert Einstein's famous skepticism about any scientific theory that appears to be what he called spooky actions at a distance. Einstein, Einstein thought science would eventually find local action that would explain, explain away the seeming lack of distance that made it so spooky. For example, if object A moves, we're used to, you know, think about a billiard ball. The reason it moves is because another billiard ball impacts it, right? That's local action. But what happens when the, the billiard balls both move even though there's no, nothing bridging the distance between them? That's the part that Einstein said, that's spooky. Here's the thing, though. The more scientists have looked into it in the intervening decades, the more it appears that there really are actions at a distance. Whether those distance actions are actually spooky may depend on how you want to think about it. In speaking out against spooky actions at a distance, Einstein, again, was advocating for a position sometimes called locality. And when you think about that word locality, maybe it strikes you as a fancy or antiquated way of referring to an area, a neighborhood, of a, or a place where something is. So we could say the locality of this building is Frederick County. We probably wouldn't say it that way, but you could. Uh, the point is that in our everyday way of thinking, every object in the universe has a locality, has a place. 
And if you'll stick with me, I'll try to lay out briefly two aspects of locality that were important for Einstein and that seemed to be subverted by quantum physics. Separability and local action. This is going to seem really basic, but that's why the discovery of action that seems to violate these norms of separability and local action was so disturbing. Separability. It says that you can separate any two objects and that the parts of the objects can then be considered on their own. For instance, in the sanctuary, we could separate all these chairs out that you're sitting in into the various corners of the room, and the chairs aren't going to cease to exist. They're not going to lose any of their features, their size, their style, their cushiness, right? That doesn't seem very spooky so far. Separability. The second is local action. It says that objects interact only by banging into one another, right, like those billiard balls, or recruiting some middleman to bridge the gap between them, like a cue stick or somebody picking up a hand and throwing them. To again use an example of this room we're in, if I'm going to have an impact on you, then I must somehow cross the distance that separates us. Common examples of how I might do that is I could walk over and touch Patricia here on the front row. I could speak to you as I'm doing right now. That's one way of bridging the difference. Uh, I could ask Bob to walk over and speak to you on my behalf. Those are all totally fine with Newton. Not spooky at all. And it's important to note that modern technology doesn't evade this principle, right? It merely recruits new advanced intermediaries. A phone translates sound waves into electronic signals or radio waves that travel through wires or open space and then get translated back into sound on the other end. Every step of the way, something is making direct contact with something else. Again, pretty straightforward, not very spooky. But here's where it starts to get interesting. Whenever I think about Einstein's skepticism towards spooky action at a distance, I'm reminded of the science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke's three laws from his 1962 essay, The Hazards of Prophecy, The Failure of Imagination. He had three laws. The first is that when a distinguished but elderly scientist states that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. When he states that something is impossible, he is almost certainly wrong. Number two, the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into what we think of as impossible. And three, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So how does this apply to spooky action at a distance? Well, part of what seems to make spooky action possible is a phenomenon known as quantum entanglement. We saw Lisa and Laura were modeling our quantum entanglement uh, earlier. In contrast to separability and local action, quantum entanglement says that two particles that are entangled with each other are not literally intertwined. They're not like balls of yarn, but they have a peculiar bond that transcends space. They are separate, so according to Newton, like we separate out the chairs in this room, the only way they can impact each other is through some sort of local action, either directly or through a middleman again. Nevertheless, these particles sometimes continue to have an effect on one another. In other words, 
spooky action, right? So Einstein's view at the time of his death in 1955 was that there must be some significant problem with the theory of quantum physics as he knew it. It turned out he was right and just wasn't willing to accept the implications of his theory. But in 1964, almost a decade after Einstein's death, a physicist named John Stuart Bell came up with a brilliant idea for testing spooky action. And when the experiment Bell described was carried out, it was carried out imperfectly in Berkeley in the 1970s, more decisively in Paris in 1982, and near authoritatively in the Netherlands in 2015, the spooky predictions of quantum physics were vindicated. If you're curious to learn more, the most accessible um, starting point I've found is a book by the award-winning science journalist George Musser titled, you guessed it, Spooky Action at a Distance, right? Uh, It was published a few years ago by Scientific American. For my math and science nerds out there, you know who you are. A more technical introduction is the third edition of Quantum Non-Locality and Relativity by the Rutgers University philosophy professor Tim Maudlin. But seriously, unless you're really into science and math, don't start with that book. <laughs> start with Musser's book first. But for now, let me say just a little bit about this shift from separability and locality, that you really can separate things and that you really can only af- affect each other if they're locally connected to each other, to quantum entanglement, and non-locality. Here are three strange, weird, and spooky things that seem to be true about some aspects of the universe in which we find ourselves. One, quantum entanglement is undiluted by distance. Unlike gravity, which, for example, falls off in strength the farther objects are from one another, if, if two particles are quantumly entangled, it does not matter how far they are apart. Uh, they're still the same level of entangled. Quantum entanglement is discriminating. An experiment done on one photon in an entangled pair affects only its partner, uh, where that partner may be, wherever that partner may be, uh, leaving all other photons near and far untouched. So it just affects the ones entangled. Finally, quantum entanglement is instantaneous. And that's the real part. So it's, it seems... it seems to violate that you can't go faster than the speed of light because it's not actually traveling a distance, right? It's just, it just happens. Uh, a change in the state of one entangled particle makes itself felt on its particle without delay. It is instantaneous, no, no matter how vast the gulf between the two particles. Indeed, one of my favorite parts of quantum entanglement is that it seems to literally subvert the meaning of the word space, Right, you know, your space bar, it, put, it puts a space in there. Space, it spaces things out, right? That's like its job. You had one job. You know, like in our, in our normal way of thinking, space spaces things out from one another, and you can only cross, and to, to have an impact on something, you have to cross the space, the distance between you. Not so with spooky action at a distance. It's just instantaneous. And whereas Einstein died at age 76 in 1955, still thinking there must be something wrong with the theory of quantum physics that he helped develop, it turns out the universe seems to actually have spooky action at a distance. And and for the latest generation of physicists, the basic attitude about quantum entanglement seems to be a basic acceptance. That's just the way it is. 
And although non-locality and quantum entanglement are fascinating in and of themselves, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention some of the practical implications that scientists are beginning to explore. For instance, a physicist at the University of Oxford proved in 1991 that entangled particles can create a communications channel so secure that even the sneakiest government surveillance program couldn't listen in, right? Because it's instantaneous. There's nothing happening in the space in between that one can, you know, surveil. Once physicists were clued into the importance of entanglement, they've begun to see it almost everywhere they look. It even occurs in living organisms. In photosynthesis, entanglement accounts for the unexpectedly high efficiency with which molecules transfer light energy into chemical energy. There's little doubt that we are barely on the edge of the frontier about what will eventually become possible in regard to harnessing the potential of quantum entanglement and non-locality. Along these lines, last year, after I first made plans to preach about spooky action at a distance, I was fascinated to read an article from the BBC a few weeks later about Chinese scientists, at least according to the headline, quote, teleporting a photon particle from the ground to a satellite or orbiting 870 miles away. Part of what they did was create 4,000 pairs of quantum entangled photons per second at their laboratory and then fire one of the protons from each pair in a beam of light toward a satellite, which had a sensitive photon receiver that could detect the quantum states of single photons fired from the ground. Admittedly, the use of that word teleporting is a a bit inexact, uh, a clear attempt at headline grabbing, but well done, the BBC picked it up. Um, and while we aren't ready to teleport uh, human beings or starships uh, anytime soon, in the words of one Oxford professor, there are, of course, significant barriers to overcome, but this is how transformative change begins. For now, I'll move to my conclusion from, with this quote from Musser's book, uh, Spooky Action at a Distance. He writes that today we know that the universe has more to it than just things situated in space. Non-local phenomena leak out of space. They hunt at a level of reality deeper than space, where the concept of distance ceases to apply, where things that appear to lie far apart are actually nearby, or perhaps the same thing manifested in more than one place, like multiple images on a shard of kaleidoscopic glass. When we think on ter in terms of such a level, the connections between subatomic particles across a lab bench, between the inside and outside of a black hole, between the opposite sides of the universe, they don't seem as spooky anymore. If you agree that the fundamental level of physics is not local, then it's natural, not supernatural, because these two particles, which are far apart from each other, share the same fundamental non-local level. For them, time and space, in a sense, don't matter. Only when you try to visualize these phenomena in terms of space, which is forgivable for doing, since that's how we experience the everyday world. But it's only when you try to envision them in terms of space that they seem to defy comprehension. On this point of comprehensibility, how many of you are fans of the new version of Cosmos by, hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson? Anybody seen that? It's worth, worth watching. On this point, I'm reminded of one of his favorite sayings, that the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. 
On one level, that is true. On another level, I'm incredibly astounded and incredibly grateful to scientists whose insights every day continues to make our universe more comprehensible to us humans. There's a lot of um, books out there that get pretty uh, quickly out of date. One of those that's worth going back and reading is William James's The Variety of Religious Experience. He's a Harvard psychologist back around 1900. Um, And there's just one quote from that book that that always comes to mind when I think about these sometimes spooky, weird, uncanny, really, really strange things that happen sometimes that aren't always repeatable and verifiable in laboratory conditions. Uh, James used to say about the varieties of religious experience that it only takes one white crow to prove that all black crows aren't, that all crows aren't black. You know, it just takes that one anomaly to to show that something more is going on here than the regular norm. So as you um, think about that and all of this incredible place in which we find ourselves and find ourselves conscious of, may you continue your journey and do what you can to continue your journey in love, to care for one another, to care for this one earth, to do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. Like those particles that become entangled, we're different for having spent this time together. That remains true whether we're here or at a distance. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.